So hello, hello, and welcome to My Tennis Journey. Today we're joined by a guest who really has had a momentous tennis journey. It's little surprise that I've heard him described as Mr. Tennis, because that's exactly what he is. He's won titles as a junior, as an adult, as a senior. In fact, just listen to this roll call. Over 25 senior county titles, 15 national titles, including two Wimbledon vets, doubles titles. He's represented Great Britain in vets, world team events, and achieved six European club championships bronze medals. But our guest is far more than just a player. He's also a hugely respected coach and coach educator a massive supporter of Derbyshire tennis, and along with Keith Reynolds, he established the Watchhorn Tennis Club, which won National Club of the Year and produced a long list of top, top players. Incredible achievements. Let's introduce the man himself. Today's guest is Ashley Broomhead. Hi, Rob. <clears throat> Good to see you, Ash. Now, your tennis journey. Um, when did it start? What, when do you first remember having a racket in your hand? Um, I would say uh, maybe eight or nine years old. I mean, I didn't play that much tennis. My father, uh, my father played county second team. Uh, my mother, if you look at the boards at uh, Derbyshire Tennis Centre, 1947, Miss uh, E.M. Marsh was my mother. She won the county doubles. And, wow. And the other thing which she kept quiet and I found out later, she actually got invited to go down to Dan Maskell uh, at Queen's Club to have some coaching with Dan Maskell. Wow. She was a very, very natural. I mean, the one thing that surprised me about my mother when I, when I hit with her, she was, I mean, she could, she was ambidextrous sewing many. She was a, an art teacher and she was very, very gifted, but she, she would swap hands when she played. She'd play a forehand right-handed. She was naturally right-handed, but then she'd swap and play back. Uh, a forehand with a left hand, but she could also play a backhand. And she was a very, very natural uh, player. And so, you know, tennis was in the blood. And yeah. it's, it's interesting though, Ash, because, you know, tennis clearly in our family's blood. And, and I remember our Ned probably having a racket in his hand when he was two or three. Yeah. Children seem to start a lot earlier these days because it was eight or nine before you were playing that you can remember. Yeah, well, you did so many things in those in those days. I mean, I may have picked up a racket. No, no mini rackets. You'd pick up your dad's, my dad's big Dunlop Max Ply Fours. <laughs> my mum had a Slazenger racket, and and you'd play two hands with those, trying to keep the ball going. And it was um, that's that's the way it was. No, no mini tennis balls. No mini tennis courts. You'd just go and hit a, a tennis ball against the wall. So what other sports were you doing in those, those childhood days? Um, well, a lot of that, I mean, I played a lot of football. Um, when I was at Chesterfield Grammar School, um, I, got into the, I got captain of the various age group teams and played with some, some good friends of mine. And we still keep in contact. Yeah. We have a WhatsApp group from, from when 40 years ago. And uh, that's that I played with. And several of us, when we were in the fifth form, played for the first 11. I mean, one one year, I think, well, I don't think it was only in the first 11, but we won the Chantal Cup, which is for all Derbyshire schools. Yeah. Um, we won that. And then I played for Chesterfield Boys. And the other thing we, I played was a, a team called Carvale, which was a youth team for Chesterfield Football Club. 
Um, and several of the players went on to get in the lower ranks professionals. But uh, in our back four was Mark Higgins. Mark Higgins at 16 was the England under 16 captain. Wow. And his dad, his dad uh, played in the, um, in the cup final for Bolton against Stanley Matthews. His dad yeah. used to come along with him as well. Mark, Mark was like a man at 16. Huge, wow. very strong. And because uh, he went to Everton and played for Everton. And I think he, he, he came back, he was injured or something. And he came back, I think he played for Man U. Wow, amazing. And what, what position were you playing at this point, Nanash? Well, I bet you can't guess. If I like running a lot, what, what do you think? you got to be on the wing, haven't you? Well, no, midfield. Ah, you said I, I was left midfield. And the funny thing was, I mean, this, this is what happens later on in, in the tennis. I was left midfield. I was right-footed. And I used to practice and practice and practice with my left foot on the drive and made... And in the end, I... I you know, I, I wasn't quite as good with the left foot, but I was very competent with the left foot of crossing a ball and doing that. But I used to play left midfield. And then, yeah. and and then, then, then you know, you're doing a lot of football at this point. Yeah. And so when did tennis, when did the balance start to move towards tennis? Well, I'm not sure. I can't remember whether I won the 14 under county championships or not. I may have got to the final. But then I have a picture when I was 16... I won the, um, there's a picture of me at Chesterfield Tennis Club with five trophies. I won the 16 singles, doubles, the 18 singles, doubles and mixed. Wow, come on. So in that, in that period, um, I improved a lot. But it's, it's interesting because I used to uh, hit with Roger Thompson, Chris Renshaw, the senior county players. Uh, Roger Thompson did a lot for me. Um, and the other, the other thing that uh, was a strong thing was, was Andy Jarrett's role. Yeah. Because Andy, um, Andy at 14 was one of the best in the country. I think Andy at 16 had won the national grass courts and, and the 18th. So Andy was one of the best juniors um, around. And I think, um, I mean, in your podcast, Andy talks about losing three matches when he first started winning. And I think Andy was playing, well, he was playing county second team at 11 with right. John Fletcher. We had county second team matches then. And then also, I think at 13, was playing group three county week. I mean, and so that's how the tennis came through. So 14, 15, that was okay. I think I played, I played county men's first team in the Winter Cup when I was 16. And then went to my, my first county week was at 17 in group one. I've got to say, there's a friend of mine called Dan who has, uh, he's not a big tennis fan, but he's, um, he's listened to every podcast. And Dan sent me a note yesterday and he was like, I'm not a tennis fan, but I want to go to county week. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the passion that, you know, we as a community, and I know we're Derbyshire focused and, and people look at, uh, are listening from uh, outside of Derbyshire, but County Week, Gash, you know, if we were mm. to sum up the importance, it's it's so important to us as, as well. Counties. It's really important to British British tennis players. Yeah. Because I mean, I was looking at something the other day and it was about the the LTA pathway of, of players. And you know, it's this seamless 
pathway? Well, it may be seamless on paper, but it isn't seamless in reality. There are very few players who have gone through a seamless um, path, even Andy Murray, Jamie Murray. Um, I mean, and certainly um, uh, Johnny Murray. Yeah. And, and uh, certainly Joe Salisbury. These are guys have not gone through us. They've always been national champions at younger age groups and they've got better. So there's this thing, you know, a lot of, a lot of the, the children get on this bandwagon of, of, of training when they're so young. Then they find out that probably at 14, they're not kept on as it does in football. You know, there are fewer tennis players. And then it seems as though the whole motivation goes. And as I say to some of the kids when I'm coaching them, you know, you're 14 years old. You've only got four years as a junior. And if you take me, I've had 42 years as a senior. And that's when it all, that's when it all begins. So, you know, but please, people to go down, you know, Murray has done an incredible job, but it's an exception. And I remember that um, uh, with DIS, uh, with Andy Woodrum's Derbyshire Institute of Sport, and we had somebody come in and talk about football who knew a lot about football. And he said, most 16 year olds don't want to be professional footballers, which run through with uh, when I went to Barcelona, I went six years on the trot to total tennis in Barcelona with some very good coaches. Even Francis Roish was there, who is uh, Nadal's technical coach, and Jordi, who was his Davis Cup captain when they went. And they gave a talk. Most 16-year-olds in Spain don't want to be professional tennis players. And so, and is that because it's just they've overdone it, Ash? Is that because yeah. they've had so, so much that they just want to get away from it? Yeah, and and... You know, what is motivation? What is, what is the thing in terms of what stops us? The motivation sometimes is when you feel as though you're not getting better and you're not improving. And if you, if you keep a perspective on, on what it is to improve and what you need to do to get better, mm. rather than I, and some of them at a young age, which is difficult because kids become outcome orientated, that the loss defines them as people. You know, I am, I've lost the match, I'm therefore no good. And it's not just you step off the tennis court, you've just lost a tennis match. It doesn't mean anything in relation to who you are. But a lot of them get caught up in that, that I am, I'm not, I've lost my tennis matches. And most people will lose more matches than they win. Yeah. But it defines them. And, and what they've got to do is put it in perspective and understand the skills that they need to do to improve. And it's, it's a society thing, this as well, isn't it? It's yeah. like, I see it in football. The, when players come off the pitch and they go home after a game or whatever, the, the juniors and, and the parents or, or whoever they bump into, did you win? Yes. Not, you know, it's, and it, so it's defined by winning and losing. It's not yeah. defined by, hey, you've just gone out and you've performed and you've given you all for your teammates. It's defined by, did you win or lose? And it's like... Yes. And it's, so it's tricky, isn't it? And I, I think, and I think one of the reasons actually the podcast called My Tennis Journey because tennis is a journey, is it not? It's not about that that win, that loss, that you know that's just a blip on a on an epic journey that it can be. Well, yeah, and and you know my journey 
has been probably from when I was about 14 and now into my 60s. And it, it will continue. We've talked about those early years, uh, lots of football, tennis starting to ramp up. I get the impression you really started to step that tennis up as the end of your junior career was approaching. As you, as you get better, then you look for challenges. What is the next step? And so I would, I would get better as a, as a junior. Then, then, I mean, I think, I mean, I got to the quarters of junior Wimbledon, which so that, and we had these rankings, which I would put me, they put me at number 10 in the country at under 18, which was such a, <clears throat> such a rise in probably two or three years. And, and Keith was instrumental um, in helping me with that. Jim Lee, who also coached Andy. One of the things that, you know, it's related, of course, to Derbyshire, but I think it's so much of a bigger story than just Derbyshire, is really the, the origins of the Watchorn Tennis Club, just such an incredibly innovative tennis club. How did it, how did it come about? Um, well, that's, that's a, a story, uh, again, another journey from 79 to 2010 when we sold it. Um, so I did my teaching degree. At the same time, I was doing my coaching qualification. So I think I was the second youngest to achieve the professionals. There were three levels then. Now there are five and I've upgraded. I'm a level five yeah. uh, master performance coach. Um, and so I never went into teaching and I knew Keith was, Keith had come back from America and was coaching in the area, was coaching me, he'd set this up and there was a club. And Keith was looking around for something and this became, the watch on became available. It was owned by the watch on trust, a guy who in the thirties became multimillionaire and donated a lot of money to the local area. There's a book about him. And so we, we got the club going with two tarmac courts. Keith had patched them up a bit with some tarmac so we could play. And of course, as it got on a bit, then we put some floodlights up. Yeah. So what doesn't happen now? I mean, uh, it's funny talking to some of the guys who used to coach who are now older. You know, you're clearing snow off the court and it's piled on the side and the ball's gone there and they're as hard as nails when they come off. And, and then it snows again the next night and you've got to clear it again. And then, of course, people were traveling long distances for coaching. So we then put the, got the bubble up, which was the biggest in the country, over two courts, translucent bubble, put that up. Um, and the bowling green that was about two foot high with grass, we cut that down and Keith rang um, the All England Club. We got the Cumberland Turf Seed. And I mean, some mornings, some Saturday mornings, we had Keith's Renault 4 with a chain harrow behind it. And if we got some time between lessons, we'd drive the Renault 4 trying to get this tilt so we could put the seed down so it would take. <laughs> Amazing. All these things that we did. You know, this is the thing to me, though, Ash, that I love about it is that, like, my job before going into full-time tennis coaching was innovation. It was, yeah. with, you know, making new drinks. And what I think defines Watchorn, and it's so lovely to hear about, it's innovation. Oh, and yeah. I mean, what was it like? It must have been such a buzz at that time because you were just coming up with things and making them happen. Well, and... And a lot of that, I mean, it only puts it in perspective when we got rid of the club, when it, when it had had its day, which it, everything comes to, a, you know, an end in a, in a way. And 
you don't realize how much energy you put into it. So the, the bowling green, um, the, the tennis courts, I mean, marking those out so the club members could play. I mean, gee, I mean, doing the work in that and you having to cut the grass, mark it out with the line thing so the matches could take place. And then, of course, we had so many players who were playing internationally that uh, we then looked at, well, we need some clay courts. Um, the European clay courts, the red clay, didn't seem to fit. And so we went for the American hard true clay. So we were the first ones. We got a team over from America and they, they came and put down the three American clay courts. They stayed in the travel lodge opposite and they put those down. And so we had clay courts so the players could learn how to play and move, slide and move on clay. And so we now had five courts. But how did you make that happen though, Ash? Because the fact that you've got these clay courts, you've got this bubble, you've got the floodlights. I mean, how, I mean, funding-wise, how did you make these things happen? Were the grants available at yeah, the time? Well, the Sports Aid Foundation gave us a grant. I mean, I mean, I think the cost of the bubble in those days uh, when we did it was it may have been about twenty thousand pounds. Yeah. Um, then we got a grant towards the clay courts. We then took away the bank part of it and made this. Do you remember the big knockout wall we had made? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big knockout wall. We then, uh, from the tarmac area, we put down some little mini tennis courts. I had the basketball, I had a basketball net put up and everything like yeah, that. Yeah, I remember that. And, and then also, the one thing that you've got at home, which has lasted for so many years, is the, <laughs> is the outdoor table tennis table. I love that table tennis table. Go on, here's a roll call. It's an outdoor table tennis table that was made by a a boat manufacturer. So it's made of fiberglass. Yeah, well, I was up up in Windermere and um, I'd always looked at an outdoor table tennis table. You see them in in ski resorts made out of concrete. And I thought, well, I'm not sure about that. And I'd I'd seen this. And I got the number off the off the table tennis table that was there. I rang the guy up. I think it was 400 quid. Wow. And I rang him up. And then, of course, this table tennis table came. And, of course, you know, the whole atmosphere you created was uh, sometimes the kids would go and play basketball. Sometimes they'd have a little, we'd have table tennis matches, you know, uh, as coaches, Rob Briggs, Rich Morley we'd be all having table tennis competing against each other. And of course, when we had the tournaments on, yeah, the kids had something to do when they were off. I mean, so, I just think about the, the people who must have played on that table tennis table, the roll call. Yeah. I'm guessing maybe the Murrays may have played on it. The... Well, the one thing that, that happened and not many people knew, we had three, we had three world number ones that played at the, had played at the watch on. Jamie Murray. World. Jamie Murray, Andy Murray, because Jamie I think beat Chris Archer in in the in the twelves. Uh, Judy brought them down, and then I think Tom, uh, Andy beat Tom, in in the in the tens I think he was or twelve fourteens I'm not either age group. Uh, Marat Safin was number two for Russia when we staged the Europa Cup. And, wow! And the Wimbledon champion Johnny Murray. Johnny. Johnny used to come and play in the ratings. I used to. With the great help of the team of people at the club, Rachel Keel, David Keel, John Briggs, all helping. And we had 
we had six tournaments as well. And Johnny used to come over from Sheffield. I mean, I can still picture him playing now because as a 14-year-old, he was serving Molly. Brilliant. Brilliant. Johnny, Love it. you know where Johnny. So all those, all those people, I've seen where they were. Yeah. But you to know, me, you know, I get so excited about this, Ash, because... I think, you know, leaving my corporate world to get into tennis is because I want to create a hotbed of tennis in, in the villages, get the kids playing, get the juniors playing. And that is what was achieved at Watchorn. That was incredibly you, buzzing, wasn't it? If you think of if you think of, of Alfreton as being, it's not a wealthy area and what came from it. And even even Tina Croson was from yeah. Alfreton and played in the junior end at Wimbledon. Yeah. And the number of players who from there played internationally, Paul Robinson, Keith coached Paul Robinson. Paul Robinson lost to Rosetsky in the semi-final of the Nationals in three sets wow. and went to American University. And I think, I think he, he may have won the, the NCAA championships. He was a very good player. And what about the, you know, the coaches who have come out of that period oh, yeah. as well? You know, because Andy Barnes as well? Andy, Andy Barnes came out of it. Uh, Rich, <laughs> Rich Morley, uh, as you know, your teammate. Um, I mean, I was in, I was in the uh, at the watch on one afternoon, and I got a phone call. And it was a friend of mine who was in the Middle East, and he said, uh, he said, I'm looking for a coach. You know, I want somebody to come out and play. And so I mentioned it to Rich because Rich, I always thought needed his passport to get out of Derbyshire. You know, <laughs> that. If he went out to Derbyshire, he'd done a long journey. And so I said, Rich, this is a chance for you to spread your wings. I mean, Rich, Rich, great enthusiasm. He was great on court. Yeah. <laughs> Nightmare off court. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was the type of lad, you know, you tell off and you, you try to be serious and then you just burst out laughing. An infectious enthusiasm for the game. Put yeah. Rich on a court with a bunch of kids. That kids will be into yeah. tennis. They'll be hooked on tennis. Which is... Rich became a good player because at the club, we also got involved in national club league teams. Uh, many, Chris Archer, James, I'm sure Tom played, but we had players playing for us, got involved in the teams and therefore they played, they played a high level of tennis. Yeah, yeah, really. I mean, you. I mean, in terms of you attracted top juniors down to the club as we've just talked about. What What do you remember about Andy Murray as a junior when he came down? Um, you know, Andy, Andy was just a junior playing tennis. Yeah, you know, quite quite good. I remember him. I remember. I think Simon Thornwell beat him. I think he beat Andy in the in the national championships at, at Nottingham. So Andy Andy was okay. I mean, if you'd have said, I mean, the most the most um, the best player I would have known at at a young age group was Andy Jarrett. Really? Yeah. He was Andy was Andy was just the intensity of his and concentration um, and. That was that was the thing that when he played, there was such an intensity and a focus. I'd love to have seen Andy play tennis. Actually, I don't think I've ever seen him. You know, I've seen him play, but not properly. I mean, Andy was a role model for for the, you know, for 
Chris Archer, for Rushby's that they'd seen him play in his later years. I mean, Andy yeah. was great in terms of support, even when he was playing Davis Cup, came to play for the county. And when he could, he would support us. I had the chance to play with him a few times. And you begin, you knew what the standard was. But also, I mean, Andy would also play with, I mean, he'd play with Nigel Beedham. Nigel Beedham, his first county week at 15. And Nigel was a good ground stroke, who wasn't a great doubles player, but it was initiation for, for, um, for Nigel. Um, and Andy had to play against Mark Cox and um, one of the other well-known, well, established Leicestershire players. And of course, Mark Cox, I think, would be about 35, 36, still a very good player, playing against Andy. And Andy still gave his all. And I think he lost, they lost maybe two and two or two and three. But Andy was there trying his best, helping Nigel in his, in his initiation into county tennis. And this is, this is the big thing about it. I mean, you know, my county week, didn't win any. Andy's first county he didn't win any. Nigel Beedham probably didn't win very many. And that's where you've got to go through and yeah. find out whether you want to come back and do it again. Really and, you know, in the meantime, story. whether you want to improve. Love it. But of course, you know, along the, along your, your sort of coaching journey, it wasn't just players who went on to play top tennis. You've also worked with, with tennis players who went on to play other sports at the very top. Oh, yeah. Um, England rugby player Jonathan Joseph. He was a, a decent tennis player, was he? Well, yeah, John. John um, was part of a group of players at that. We had the National Futures Scheme, and Mark Cox would come round with a group of the LTA people around the various counties, and you would have to put forward players who you thought could be could get on the National Futures Scheme. And then they would get some support and things like that. And I'd coach, I think I coached John because he, his father, Ivan, left. They went down to Newbury. And I think he left the area maybe when he was 13. I coached him for about two or three years. And uh, John, we used to have the fitness tests for the future scheme. There were six tests, 20 metres run, five times across the court, throwing a medicine ball, and, uh, sit and reach. And it was something Patrice Hagelet brought with him from France when he was in charge. And he had all the figures that they'd done with the French kids, you know, what scores they got. And John was off the scale. The, the score, yeah. it was six tests, some doubled up to 40 points, and it was a test of 200. Now, John was about 190. Wow. Some, of the, some of the points he got, if he's up to 20, if he got a good score, he got 20 points. Now, John was off the scale. He was so fast. He was unbelievably a fantastic athlete. He was borderline for his tennis because uh, just needed to play a few more times. But he got on the scheme. Now, I mean, you know, I know, um, you know, I see you, you're coaching our lads at uh, oh, yes, yeah. training, but we get like, clearly, you know, we'll get a lot of tennis parents who are listening in. What's, what's your guidance to the, the tennis parents when it comes to, to their juniors and, and helping make their way in the tennis world, having seen so many things over the years? I think, uh, I mean, yeah, we have, I've seen many uh, parents involved in the tennis. I've seen parents that may have, have done a very good job in supporting in their children in tennis. And I've also seen some where 
you think this isn't healthy. Uh, not too many of those, but I mean, the best thing is to support them. Yeah. And the other thing is keep encouraging them to get better and improve. And it's not, it's not about chasing these, these points and doing that. They all chase the points. And of course, in the end, that's, that's done with results. Yeah. But the thing that sometimes happens, is, I mean, if you think of this, that in terms of juniors going into the senior team, there isn't one a year that goes in there. There may be, I mean, at the moment with the, with the men's team, when you've got uh, Sam Ferguson was uh, 98. Yeah. Before that was Chris Simpson, the 92. That's six years. Then you've got Christian Mills has come into it. So very few, you know, is, is tennis about the short lifespan, which is, let's say, 12 years old to, to 18, which is six years, or even as a senior. My path has been play senior tennis. I then got into 35s. And one thing that is still is forgotten that Derbyshire won the 35s nationals in 2008. You know, and that that was with Nick Ford, Andy Evans, myself, Jed Doherty, Clive Burton, Pete Godber. We won the 35 nationals in the leading county. And then you go 35s. Then I've gone young seniors in Germany. Uh, Then you go into 50s, 40s, 50s county. I played 40s. Uh, gone through the whole thing in Germany, which I've played 27 years for a club in Germany. And um, you keep going through the age groups. I mean, 45s played for Great Britain, 50s played for Great Britain. And then, you know, even county, uh, county matches, 60s. Well, let's play some more county matches. And that's an interesting thing in terms of the matches because uh, several of the pupils ask them, you know, when they come along, which do you prefer, training or matches? They say training. Yeah. And yet, you know, why do you train? You train in order to get better for the matches. And do you go, what I also don't understand sometimes is these, these things about players playing tournaments and then there's a playback and players pull out of them. Yet yeah. the greatest opportunity to improve is immediately to get back on and play another match. If you fall off your bike, get back on your bike. Yeah. And too often they miss the opportunity. Let's try again and see if I can do a little bit better. Now it may not, you know, competition is is very um, is is very uncomfortable because you, you, nothing guarantees you're going to win. You could lose, and yeah. therefore, but what do you do? Get better at what? What are you learning? So. In terms of the coaching, is a player going on court? And I often say this to pupils, why have you come today? And they say, to play tennis. So, well, I'll go and have a coffee and I'll let you hit with a member. You know, what are you working on to improve? I said, why have you come? I, I know in my own mind, you know, what did we do last week? What did we do last session? What have you done in your county training session? What have you done in your regional session? What are you working to get better at? And that is a thing that, and Andy, Andy put it in his podcast, you know, what are you working on today in order to be better for tomorrow? 
love that that better better tomorrow than you are today because yeah. that doesn't matter about your level does it it doesn't yeah. matter it just as something to uh, to strive for just such mm. good advice i mean there, there are interesting instances like you know playing i often play with the juniors for duffield to help them you know the as you know the first to nine and if we are winning fairly comfortably and they're serving right can you play a whole service game seven volume to yeah. challenge them the the biggest thing i remember we were watching the derbyshire junior closed one time and uh two two of the junior players they were number one seats in the in the 14s or 16s and they beat the pair on the other side love and one i was actually coaching one of these lads well it's felipe costa who's now in america yep. and uh felipe is i saw him two years ago he came back and he was number 10 in America under 16. Wow. Um, and um, he'd improved enormously in doing that. But he was playing and I had a go at him. I said, you've just won love and one. I said, how much did you serve and volley? How much did you come in on the second serves? I said, all you've done is just do what you've always done. What are you doing to improve? Because Love if it. you always do what you've always done, you'll always get the same. Yeah, yeah. And this... Oh. This would happen when, when, when I was when I was coming through and I made it into the seniors. Sometimes I'd be playing the junior matches, and I would be serving volleying and coming in because I played with the seniors, and sometimes they were staying back. Yeah. But I also knew that if I served and volleyed, this is what had you had to do in order to in order to get better. It's great well, advice. The practice, practice is, I mean, one of the things, practice is messy. Practice is not consistency. Practice is about uh, making mistakes, about learning, and also whether, the, whether, the, whether this is part of the education uh, for the parents, whether their the learning is, is, is active or passive. Do they just turn up and they receive information? As I've said, you know, somebody turns up for a lesson with me, I say, why have you come today? Well, play tennis. Well, that's not a good enough reason. Yeah. You know, what are you doing to improve, to get better? So you are an active learner in always coming off, what did I do? What happened today? I lost. What have I got to be better at? Rather than I've lost, I'm no good. Oh, well, is it that your effort wasn't good enough? You've got to try your best, but you've also got better at your skills. Yeah. improve your skills get better come on how about so i mean you've been a coach educator ash uh, for a long period of time incredibly experienced in that yeah. what's your advice for a coach such as i setting out you know on this coaching journey what's your advice for coaches to to make the most of our tennis world um create the environment i mean church broughton with jane um you know, one court club had so many good players come out of it. And yet you could go around the country and see some fancy indoor courts, nice reception area and everything like that. And there's not really much coming out of it. In the end, watch on, we created an environment. We created a, a, a court environment. We created a, a competitive environment. Uh, we gave them, you know, competition, supportive, um, took them to tournaments. That's one thing that I, I think needs to be done with Derbyshire kids. 
They need that they they need to you know go a group to Chroma. Ah, oh, no, I could. I mean, we can't talk about that for too long. But boy, oh boy, did I used to love those trips yeah. to Chroma. We got a picture of Chroma on our wall, Ash. It's a place that's so close to my heart, and it's because of those trips. You know, I used to go along yeah. with the the Morleys, but there was uh, there was lots and lots of Derbyshire families there. And in terms of creating an environment, if you're away with these people, you get to know these people. They become part. That's of That's right. They become yeah. your friends for life, don't they? Yeah, you, I mean, this happened with the trips to Barcelona, uh, with, um, I, think, I think we did two years, um, getting to know the kids, finding out what they're like. I mean, they're a fantastic bunch of kids to be with. Yeah. I mean, if they weren't playing tennis, they were playing football. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and you find some, some that, you know, are struggling, yeah. you know, with it and, and relationships. And there has to be, there has to be a connection. Um, this is even now during this period of, of lockdown and everything. I think it's sad that, you know, for the 18 under county cup, there will be some players who will not have had that experience. They've missed yeah. two years of it. I mean, it's yeah. the same in many sports, um, competition and things they'll miss, but, but don't, the, the one thing is not to forget that, you know, tennis begins after you're 18. Yeah, I think as Andy and I have spoken about it is, you know, it doesn't get serious to you about 16, which is which is when I started getting into it a bit more. Yeah. And yeah. And that is the whole thing. And it, it's interesting in in terms of what you say about what what would you say for a coach? Create the environment and allow them to explore. Allow them to explore. I mean, I've heard coaches get on to players when they've lost you know, allow them to go on, have a go. Come on. I love it. I, I love this create the environment. So if you were to summarise, Ash, you know, what the points that create the right environment to succeed as yeah. a coach, what are the top three, four factors? I think you, you give them the opportunity to practice. You give them the opportunity to explore the game. Uh, you give them the, the opportunity um, to play the game, to, to compete. Now, a lot of the lads that came up with Tom, Chris McPherson, Elliot Simon, they would go and knock hell out of each other and then go and play football afterwards. Yeah. That's and, how they get better, isn't it? That's, and that's how they get You know, a lot, of, a lot of coaching sometimes is drills and going cross-court forehands, backhands. Play the game and within the game, explore. So at the Watch On, we had a lot of tournaments, uh, October, December, uh, April, uh, May with the Derbyshire Open, July. And it, it was great because I could watch the kids play and play the tournaments. And we had National Club League matches. You could see them play and, and they had an opportunity. And a lot of this time, the kids prefer, some of them prefer to train rather than play matches. It's a really big message, isn't it? And I'm going to take that yeah. on board as this competing piece. So, you know, create little competitive situations you know, that they learn how to compete and they learn to get a feel for a match. Brilliant. Right. Great advice. Thank you, Ash. So we've only got, we've got a few minutes left. Um, uh, so, I mean, clearly you've had an incredible tennis journey. What makes you most happy when you look back on it? Um, I've never had a proper job. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> you know, I've never had a proper job and it's always been something as a hobby. And, you know, when is the end date? Well, I don't know. It's been going on and on. And the, the interesting thing is always to create the challenges of what you want to do next. It's an interesting thing that uh, Keith coached me from when I was 15 and we're still playing together on a Friday when the lockdown's not in place. That Chris Booth, Keith, uh, Andy, Andy Hall, who I was, we went down to the southeast, uh, south of England when we were 12 years old. Uh, Keith, Andy Wood. Yes. Um, Keith used to coach Andy when he was about 15, 16. And of course, he went down his path of badminton, but Andy loves his tennis. That after 40 years, we're still playing tennis. Come on. Come on. Now, if you were put in charge, uh, Ash, of world tennis for a day, Gosh. what one amazing initiative would you introduce? Oh, that's a tough one, isn't it? I don't know for world tennis, for British tennis, is get out of your environment and see what it's about. One of the first things that hit me, uh, well, many of my friends were playing French tournaments. And my, my French tournament, first one was to drive 800 miles to the south of France. I'd written to the referee, no mobile phones in those yeah. days, anything like that, no sat nav. And I'd written through, I got the French lecturer at Matlock, Brian Howitt, to write me a letter. I mean, my French is actually quite good. Uh, French and German are quite are good because I've played Germany a long time. Um, and he wrote me a letter. When I got down to the tournament, the, the judge I beat, uh, the referee, had, had not got any information. And so I said, well, I want to play in the tournament. He said, well, have you got a, a rating? I said, no. He says, we... How can I have a rating if I can't get in the tournament? <laughs> so I, I pestered him and he said, right, go and play that guy over there. He, another lad. So I played a set and beat him and he put me in the tournament and I went on and won the tournament. Wow. So there was traveling 800 miles to get there. And then in France, I remember going to Le Touquet and it was, we were traveling there and it was an ITF tournament. There were 128 players in the draw. Anders Yarid, who became world number four, was number one seed. Mansour Barami was playing it, who, who yeah. I knew from uh, practice with him down the South France. And uh, you got all these players. Gee, Christ, look how good they are. And they're playing yeah. on clay courts. So all these things, I've, I've always thought, you know, taking, taking trips and what I've seen in Germany, the, the standard in Germany is far higher than it is here. You still have... Uh, Kiefer's playing for a 30s team. Michael Stick plays for a team. A lot of the German players, and people are flying in from Spain, Holland, or driving from Holland to go and play tennis in Germany. Now, part of that is because players are getting paid, but you don't have many. You don't have anybody coming to play for Duffield or Church Broaden flying in. No. And the French tournaments. We used to have a hundred in the in the draw for the French tournaments, um, for the ratings tournaments. But over in in France, you'd have four hundred. And you'd play two tournaments. You'd play two tournaments in a week. So he played a lot of matches. And so, so the advice for, for our players would be get out of the comfort zone and, yeah. and, go and when we can, go and explore. Go, go and, and explore. Go and explore. And that is what I've done is, you know, what's it like to play tennis in France? What's it like to play tennis in Germany? And to be part of that and explore. And this is fell running. I would explore. Yeah, I'd just go out. 
skiing, which you have done. I go out and, well, that looks a nice path, you know, nice off-piste route down there. Let's go and explore. I mean, I take the kids, the girls with me out into deep powder snow through the woods and we'd have such fun. Make life an adventure, eh? Yeah, make it an adventure. Yeah. And one, one more question, Ash, but thank you so much for your time, Em. But one more question. It's a question we ask everyone. If you could go for a drink with anyone, alive or dead, who would it be and why? Who would it? Um, I would go with some of the fell runners, Joss Naylor, Billy Bland, uh, Kenny Stewart, because, and, and even recently more, Killian Journey. Killian Journey broke Billy Bland's record of 42 peaks in 24 hours. It is in 12 hours something wow. uh, in the Lake District because fell running is a pure sport. It's not about points. It's not about multimillionaires. You just go out on the hills because you want to. And those guys just did it. And just, they were out there running and, and doing it because they want to. And you turn up at a fell race, nobody makes you. You can stop whenever you want. And to talk to those guys about it, you know, what did they do? Um, what... And also, there was one in 2000, I ran the um, Lake District Mountain Trial with Chris Harwood and Alistair Hyam, although we didn't run together, we set off different points. And Josh Naylor came in, so this is 2000, so he'd be 60-odd. I did the 10-miler, and he did the 20-miler. And yeah, he was orienteering, you had to go to different points. And uh, I got in the second trick point, where you had to go with a dib around your neck, and you put it in, because it was on computer what your times were. And I just watched him. He came in. And then when we got back to the tent and you got a meal, I think it'd taken him seven hours, something like that. Looked as fresh as a daisy. Amazing. Amazing. So it'd be good to hear those stories about what he did. And, and they'd, have earned their, they'd have earned their pint, wouldn't they, after the oh, yeah. You yeah. feel like you've earned your pint and the meal after that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Come on. Hey, well, well, Ash, thank you so, so much for your time. It's... Cool. Um, it's been an incredible tennis journey. It's one that yeah. keeps on going, which is fantastic. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate your time. Well, it's, it's great what you're doing, Rob, because I think the story is what, what you've got. You know, Tom was in the academy, Vic was in the academy, Andy was one of the top. Um, you know, Vic's at the start, Tom's in the middle, Andy and I towards the end, although it still continues. Uh, my journey has never been in the academy and mine has been mainly from 16 and, and as a senior. Yeah. Long may it continue. Well, you can still get out of it. Mm. Yeah, too right. Too right. Well, some amazing lessons for, for all of our tennis community in that, Ash. So thank you so, so much. And uh, look forward to seeing you on court very soon. All right then, Rob. Cheers.